in the secular humanist worldview is really not that long. Uh, it's worth getting and having. Uh, it'd be great if you could just get it donated to you so you don't have to buy it, you know, you don't have to give the money to their people, but Prometheus Books seems to be the main publisher of these uh, of, of purely uh, unadulterated humanistic materials. I'm sure there's lots of humanism that's being promoted through other publishing houses, but Prometheus Books is their main source uh, where they're publishing humanism and, uh, and getting it out there. But as you read this, they're not even shy about what they're trying to do. It starts off in the preface of the first Humanist Manifesto, which was written in uh, 1933. It says, Humanism is a philosophical, religious, and moral point of view as old as human civilization itself. I mean, from the very first sentence, you get the idea that this is a religious worldview. And from this standpoint, all of what we see going on, the removal of the Ten Commandments from public places, the removal of prayer from school and the Ten Commandments out of school and teaching only evolution and, and not allowing creation to be presented as a theory you know, in, uh, in schools, all of that is being done in the name of separating church and state. But originally, the separation of church and state idea was so that the government would not have a, uh, a particular denomination or church state that they exclusively promoted. The goal wasn't that the, wasn't that, uh, the church couldn't speak towards state issues. The goal was that the state would keep their nose out of religious issues so that you would have religious freedom. You wouldn't have a government-mandated, funded, organized church that would become the dominant one such as the Church of England was. And, uh, and so, anyway, we've gotten far away from that. And essentially what's happened is in the name of the separation of church and state, they're getting rid of all the Christianity and biblical principles. But what they are now doing is they are giving exclusive access to the schools and the public, uh, public areas, ex- exclusive public access to the religion of secular humanism. And if we would take that first sentence out of the Humanist Manifesto and recognize that this is a religious worldview, then we would have better grounds to stand upon to say, wait a second, for instance, if we go into a school board meeting, you know, the decision that you're making is, uh, is promoting secular humanism. As the religion of secular humanism, you're promoting it exclusively, and therefore, really, they're the ones who are violating the original intent of the separation of church and state. But that's where they come. They're, uh, they're so bold as to talk about through education would be their way of, uh, of promoting their views. They've talked about outgrowing traditional religion. But anyway, if you were to go through and study it, we really need to know secular humanism as a religion and as a worldview because it becomes so dominant within our culture. And by the way, as we will see today, it becomes dominant not only out there in movies and in entertainment and in politics but it, and in law, sociology, but it becomes dominant uh, within Christianity as well. You start understanding how much Christianity is not biblical Christian worldview, but it's secular humanism that has crept in. And we're going to see that especially today. We have gone through, we have studied theology, where we began understanding that, that uh, they are atheistic in their approach, and we are the only one that is a true theism that believes that there is a God and He has revealed Himself. Whoops. When it comes to philosophy, we talked about that two weeks ago, and their philosophy stems from their atheism, from their theology. Since they believe that there's no God, then obviously there must not be any kind of supernatural, and so they're going to be naturalists. 
we, on the other hand, do believe in the supernatural, but we also believe in the natural. So we believe in the natural and supernatural. We recognize them both. New Agers, as we talked about, that would be non-naturalists, meaning that they believe that the supernatural is really all that is real, all that exists. And as a result, everything else is just a facade. Uh, as soon as we get in touch with that which is real, the fact that we are all part of God, the pantheistic system, then we become self-actualized. Or we be, you know, that, and that's their goal in the New Age. They're not, really, they're not concerned about the natural. They think that everything is supernatural. That's why some of them wouldn't even treat natural disease. They say you don't have any sort of real chemical or physiological rationale for this disease. There must be some supernatural cause. And if you do enough meditating uh, and self-actualizing, then you'll be able to heal yourself. I mean, there's all kinds of uh, crazy New Age ideas that are out there. Then we talked about biology. We'll come back to ethics later. But last week, in talking about biology, is essentially evolution versus creation is what the big debate is. Uh, right now, they're using evolution, Darwinian evolution, as their form. But the reality is, there are so many humanists who are recognizing all of the flaws of evolution. And so they're not becoming creationists. That is not causing them to become Christians. They are just... They continue to be naturalists who are now trying to come up with some better explanation for how everything got here without God and with, without any kind of soul or mind. Uh, they come up with some other rationale. And so really, just by defeating evolution does not cause someone to be converted to become a Christian. Uh, there's so much more that's involved in that. And as Mark was talking last week, and I think he gave so much great information There are some serious problems with evolution that I think are beneficial for us to talk about for the sake of our own children and for ourselves. Because evolution is pounded at us so much, it's it's important for us to recognize some of the weaknesses and some of the problems with evolution. Weaknesses such as the second law of thermodynamics. I mean, evolution, the whole idea, conflicts with many of the laws of science that we already have. And Mark went into this some already, but... You know, the fact is, is left to itself, everything deteriorates rather than improves. And so if you were to take the second law of thermodynamics, you, evolution contradicts that. So it, can, it really, it's a scientific theory that, kind, that contradicts scientific laws. And uh, that's a problem for scientists. And it's something that we need to be aware of. Another problem with uh, evolution would be uh, uh, spontaneous generation. In other words, how do you get life from non-life? They all would have to admit that even if matter was eternal, that there was at some point a non-living matter that became living matter. And they've been able to, they think, reproduce life or a various form of life within a uh, scientific you know, room in a petri dish or something. They say, well, we have little forms of DNA or something. And again, I'm not the person to talk about it. Mark has much more information on this. But even that illustration proves that that stuff doesn't happen in a chaotic form. It is something that's done by design by someone who's in a lab who's reproducing it. Spontaneous... Spontaneous generation is a serious problem for evolution. Spontaneous generation says that just life, life just appeared out of nothing. It just spontaneously occurred. Now we have life and it becomes more and more complex. So, second law of thermodynamics is a problem. Spontaneous generation becomes a problem. The other problem for them is the vast amount of time that it would require. 
the age of the earth, or the, I mean, it would take billions and trillions of years for life to evolve from a very simple to what we have it now. And so they, they recognize it would take billions and trillions of years. And as a result, they expect that there would be evidence of billions and trillions of years all around us, not only in our earth, but in all of the universe. And around the universe, I mean, they point at the stars and they say, see, there's billions and trillions of years old. But then you come to the moon. And based on the age that they were expecting the moon to be, they would expect a vast amount of, of dust that was on the moon. And they were even expecting that when they had landed on the moon in the 60, late 60s. And, and when they got there, they found a, a real small amount of solar or space or whatever you call it, dust, uh, which shows that the moon has not been there nearly as long as what they had expected it would be. Billions and trillions of years ago, if the sun was burning at the rate which is burning now, billions and trillions of years ago, the sun would have been in contact with the earth and the earth couldn't have existed because of the size of the sun burning us up. Uh, I mean, that's a, that's a serious problem. Billions and trillions of years ago, we are now able to measure the amount of salt or the... the, the uh, it's not really salt. What is it that's in the oceans? You know, all the different... Um, all the different... Uh, what? Minerals. All the different minerals. We're able to minera- We're able to measure how much mineral is added over long periods of time through erosion and through that whole process. Well, if you were to go back billions and trillions of years ago, then the whole uh, you'd be able to walk on the ocean. It would have so much uh, it have so much mineral and so much. Uh, filth within it. And so that again is telling us that our ocean is relatively young compared to the whole billions and trillions of years kind of thing. And so the age of the earth and the billions and trillions of years becomes a problem for evolution. Spontaneous generation, second law of thermodynamics. Uh, another problem for evolution is, uh, well, many have called it the anthropic principle. The idea that this earth has been perfectly seems to be perfectly designed for human life and for life of any kind. These kind of things don't happen. When you see the amount of oxygen and nitrogen, the way that is mixed within our air that's suitable for us to breathe, the, the gravity, the amount of gravity that we have, if you had any more gravity, we'd be squished. If you had any less, we'd be floating around. Uh, and you could just go on and on. All of these are principles that are saying that this has been designed for life and it's not by accident. So the anthropic principle would be another problem for evolution. Oh, and then the other would be the, uh, the missing links or the uh, transitional forms. If you're, having a trans- if you're supposed to be having transition from this life to this life to this life and, and reptiles become birds and become, rep- uh, become mammals and all that different stuff that they're describing, then even Darwin himself, in that, he said, then we should see transitional forms. We should see missing links. We should see something that was this and is becoming this. And with all the fossil evidence that we have, we have vast amounts of fossil evidence. And guess how many transitional forms we have found? Not a single one. I mean, they go through all their effort to try to find them, and they even try to, they try to design them and say, see, this is a missing link, but they're not. The missing link isn't just a monkey that is kind of human. The missing link goes with any transitional form. Fish are always fish. Birds are always birds. Reptiles are always reptiles. Mammals are always mammals. And then you have some things that don't fit into our, you know, our little system. I'm not sure. You know, with the, but I do know that they're not transitional forms that are showing this evolving into this, evolving into this. And so the fossil record becomes a serious problem for evolution, and uh, they try to deny it. 
So there are problems with evolution. But as I just mentioned, just because you defeat evolution does not make someone a creationist. And we have every reason to believe by faith that what God has said in His Word is true. And so, Mark, I really appreciate everything you did last week with biology. Today, we're getting into psychology. The study of the soul. And when you talk about the study of the soul, then all of what we've just talked about uh, before, all of every single part of this chart builds upon it, uh, itself. And so when they talk about monistic self-actualization, when they talk about uh, monistic behaviorism, Pavlovian behaviorism, all of those come right out of the fact that if there's no God, and if there's no supernatural, everything is matter, then you're going to have a serious problem when you're coming to the real issue of what makes mankind. Because if all we are is matter, and if there is no God, and if there is no supernatural, then monism tells us that we're one thing, that we are natural, not supernatural. So there is no body and soul distinction. We are bodies. And everything that happens within our brain is... Is, chem is chemical or electric. It has nothing to do with any kind of personality and uh, it removes all the intangibles. It's something that's, that's, that's physical and that's why they call it monism. With monism, you're going to come to one of two things that you're concerned about. Well, actually, you're only concerned with one thing, behavior. All they're concerned about is changing someone's behavior. They see it, they don't like it, there must be some sort of rationale behind it and so they're going to get into all kinds of crazy ideas about it. Now, in my introduction, I've gotten a lot further than I intended to get. And so I think that we need to open with a word of prayer. As we open in prayer, before we go and study uh, psychology and in in some of the details, we need to pray for Eve Nieves. She had uh, heart surgery again this last Thursday. It was six and a half hours of surgery that that she had. They are not optimistic about uh, the results and so we need to continue to pray for her that they're saying that she may need another surgery when she's 16. But what happens is her heart goes into a, just a fluttering mode and they're concerned about that and in order to be able to control it, they're trying to alleviate that problem by first burning something that creates problem and then freezing it. Is, am I correct? Is that kind of the... So they froze it, they burned it, and neither of them has accomplished what they were hoping to do and get the electrical system within the heart right. But anyway, pray for Eve that perhaps the Lord will just choose to heal her without her having to go back in when she's 16. So pray for her and for her family. Uh, Jenny McRae is doing much better, so we praise the Lord for that. Uh, please pray um, for the Clements, Karen. And Rick are here. Karen's mother passed away within the last few days. And they'll be having a service for her this Tuesday down in Pueblo. We do praise the Lord within the last six months. She, uh, she professed faith in Christ. So praise the Lord for that. That uh, she came to know the Lord as her Savior. Pray for Karen though. The Lord will comfort her. Uh, any other requests that you have right off the top of your brain? Something that we can pray with you about? Alright, let me lead us in prayer on these things. Yes, Mark. Okay. Sounds good. Pray for so many that are on the road. Lord, we do thank you for your grace and for your... Well, we thank you for your word that is truth. And we thank you that we can study it. And we thank you for the worldview that it gives us. And Lord, we thank you that our lives are built upon a, a foundation and not on the shifting sands. And help us to know your word more and live according to it. That's what our desire is. We do pray for those that are traveling, that you'll give them traveling mercy. and uh, We pray for protection. We pray that as they are away, that you will 
uh, minister to them and encourage them. And we pray that they would return refreshed. We pray for Eve as she recovers from surgery. That you will, Lord, we pray that you'll touch her little body. And we pray that uh, you would choose to heal her and she won't have this problem anymore. Minister to her family and all the different needs that are there. Um, through this time especially, we pray for Danny's salvation. So I pray that you will continue to work in his heart. Grateful for what you are doing, and we know that you will continue that work. Uh, Lord, there are other health needs that are out there. We pray that you'll minister to each one. We pray for uh, Karen, that you'll give her real comfort at this time of loss. We thank you for the comfort and the hope that those who know you are with you. And what a joy that there is victory over death, that death has lost its sting and this victory. And so we praise you, Lord. Um, for working in her life. We pray for Rick that you will give him a special grace as he ministers to the rest of the family and pray that that the gospel is heard, that there will be others who come to faith in Christ uh, even this Tuesday. And Lord, other concerns that may be on our hearts, we pray for them as well. We uh, pray that you'll teach us in these next moments. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Okay, jumping into the psychology mode. Um, We handed out a paper, and I, I hope that you already have it. If you don't, There are some more available in the back, but it's a summary of psychology. And so you'll want to have this. This goes along with the philosophy one that you have already handed. Bill is also printing out a little article for each each family. We're doing 30 copies, and uh, Bill Bill will have them. Actually, where this is is on the back. back. Yeah, let's see. Dave, if you don't mind, could you get that? and, And whoever doesn't have it, you can raise your hand, and Dave will get it to you. This just gives a summary, and then the article, we'll hand it out one per family. We didn't copy as many, but the article is a, is a direct refutation of humanistic psychology. And this is such, a, such an issue of the day. Let me read for you. We're going to come to Scripture and read a lot of Scripture in a moment. But reading from the Humanist Manifesto 1, um, they say, Religious humanism considers the complete realization of human personality to be the end of man's life and seeks his development and fulfillment in the here and now. This is the explanation of the humanist social pattern uh, or passion. In other words, they're saying that psychology is man's, shows man's need and really what man's need is in the here and now. It's not eternal deliverance. It's not a soul need. But it has everything to do with their self-actualization, their satisfaction with how things are going in the here and now. And as a result, they become very socially driven because they want to alleviate poverty because poverty is that cause that causes some people to be less satisfied than others. And so ultimately, there are no psychological problems. It's all, uh, it's all environment. If we can get rid of poverty, if we can get rid of... Uh, you know, oppressive things like the family and like, you know, ideas of the, the oppressive ideas of, uh, of sexual morality. I mean, that hinders self-actualization. And so they're trying to remove those boundaries so that you can find self-actualization with two consenting adults, whoever they may be, whatever sex and however many people, they just don't set any limits. And they think that those of us who are limited uh, don't find true satisfaction. But what's amazing is that Time Magazine even comes out and having done a study, they found out that where there is true satisfaction when it comes to intimacy is between one man and one woman in marriage. Where there is monogamy, where there is commitment, there becomes satisfaction. And so, amazingly, 
God's word was right all along and all of this humanistic psychology trying to self-actualize people and help them find satisfaction just doesn't work. If you're trying to alleviate poverty and if you're trying to educate people and if that should take care of all their problems, then how do you explain that within one of the more wealthy communities in a good middle class area like Denver from a solid school such as Columbine, how do you explain kids having such problems that they would come in and shoot up the place. That becomes a real problem for humanists. And so they have to go through and find out some sort of, you know, some other sort of uh, answer. Well, they were teased. So we need to get rid of all teasing and, you know, or whatever else it might have been. And so they have a serious problem because they say, here is the environment that you set. And if you have the environment, then you should be able to predict the behavior that comes But as all of us, as parents know, no matter what environment you set, behavior of children is not always predictable. Not even by the weather. You know, I mean, you're a teacher. And as a teacher, some teachers are able to predict a snowstorm coming because their children act a certain way, right? But that's not the only explanation. Sometimes kids do things that you just think, where did that come from? Well, here's where it came from. The fact that they are an independent soul, they do have a free will, and they make choices that are sometimes contradictory to uh, the environment that they are raised in. So there is, there is a complexity that a humanist cannot acknowledge. Uh, we believe in, a, in dualism, which means that we believe, and by dualism, I'm not saying that I'm a dichotomist or a trichotomist. I'm not, by dichotomist and trichotomist, the Bible says that we have body, soul, and spirit. So there are some who say body, soul, and spirit, that's trichotomy. There are some who say body and soul and spirit is a dichotomy. All right? it's just, so I'm not getting into that debate this morning. The whole purpose isn't to get into that debate. It's just going to say that anyone who's a biblical Christian is going to recognize a dualism that says there's body, there's the physical, the natural, and then there's the spirit. There's something supernatural. There's something spiritual about man. And so there's a complexity that comes, and the humanist must reject that. I'm trying to think of exactly the best way to go in talking about this. Let's start off by talking monistic Pavlovian behaviorism. Because ultimately, as I've said, secular humanism and Marxist humanism, are, they're pretty much identical. Uh, the only difference is when you get down to social, uh, their sociology, or uh, I'm sorry, socialism versus communism, that's the only place that they become different. And socialism, for the humanist, uh, they're a little bit more peace-minded, whereas a communist is a socialist with a gun. And so they're, in, they're going with, well, I mean, that's, <laughs> that's really what it is. They're just enforcing revolution. And so people say communism is dead. Communism is not dead. Communism, the ideas of communism are alive and well. Uh, it's just dead wherever it's been tried uh, over in the Far East. You know, I mean, in Eastern Europe, it may be dead because people recognize that it doesn't work. However, it's alive and well on an American campus. They just call it sociology. And, but it's the same ideas. I mean, all of the different things that you run into uh, are, are there. Psychology is where you find humanism perhaps more than any other discipline where, where you would go. Uh, If you're going to college, if you're going to a secular college, and if it's a college that is promoting humanism, which is almost every public as well as private Christian college, almost every college you go to is promoting humanism rather than biblical Christianity. There are... There are exceptions, but you've you got to have your guard up wherever you go. 
But where you find it is not just in the biology department. It's not just where they're teaching evolution. It's found in the humanities department, in the English class, uh, in liter- English literature. Freshman English literature is one of the first places that they're go- going to attack your Christian faith. You go in thinking you're going to learn English, and really what happens is you are being indoctrinated into humanism, and you're being told how stupid Christianity is, and your parents who brought you up in that Christianity. And, you know, it takes people off, off guard. But here's another place that you will find it dominant, and that's in the psychology department. In the psychology department, you're going to be filled with monistic views, which lead to behaviorism, including Pavlovian behaviorism. Has anyone here ever heard of Pavlov's dog? Of course, we all have. We we don't know how that works. I mean, because it's a dog, then you can condition it for certain behavioral responses. And so if you ring a bell and then you feed the dog, you ring a bell, you feed the dog, you ring the bell, you feed the dog, the dog's going to figure out that, oh, well, I'm supposed to be getting dinner. And so when you ring the bell, even if you don't feed the dog, there's going to be a salivating. He's ready to eat. All right. He's been conditioned to have a certain response. And so they try to take that same idea that definitely works for a dog because a dog is, a, you know, a dog doesn't have a soul or a spirit like humans. I mean, they're, they're good. and there are certain ways that humans can be conditioned and there are certain things that you can do where you would train or condition a certain behavior. All right. If you're a parent, you, you, you learn to use one of two things to condition behavior. You either use a, a stick or a carrot. Just like in the same way that you would try to motivate a a donkey. Excuse me, I'm sorry, I'm not trying to be crude here. But a donkey moves for one of two reasons. He has a carrot dangling out in front of him. There's a reward that he's seeking after. Or he's moving because someone's behind him beating him with a stick. And so there's either pain or there is reward. And so pain or reward is ultimately what comes into behavioristic ideas. And, and our world is filled with it. And here's the problem. Is that many times, even as Christians and as parents, we become more concerned about the behavior of our young people or our people in our church. We're concerned more about behavior than we are about their soul condition and the heart behind it. And you can train a certain behavior. And even if you get that behavior, you still haven't accomplished your purpose. That's what the Pharisees were concerned about. Behavior, behavior, behavior. And yet they wouldn't get to the soul. They wouldn't get the heart of issues. And as a result, their behaviorism led people to hell. Wouldn't it be terrible to have your children be the best behaving little hell-bound individuals that there ever has been? I mean, again, what good is it if they're well-behaved if they're still hell-bound? And so certainly we're concerned about their behavior, but far more than their behavior, we're concerned about their heart, we're concerned about their soul, their relationship with God. And so that is the difference uh, that we would find. Pavlovian behaviorism says we've got to condition and change people's behavior. And so they do all kinds of different psychological manipulation. And really, for them to use the term psychology it's just, as, it just isn't even fair. The term psychology is the study or the dealing of the soul. And they don't even believe that there is a soul. So when they're using it, they don't even believe that there is a soul. It just purely is behaviorism. So they say, okay, what kind of things do we do to condition people's uh, uh, behavior? Here are a couple of presuppositions that they come with. First of all, they believe that man is inherently good. They believe that man is inherently good and since man is basically good, you just need to condition them, uh, put them in the right environment and you're going to get good citizens, you're going to get good people. They're going to be self-actualized, they're going to be satisfied, they're going to be happy, content, everything will be wonderful. 
And so, man is inherently good. The problem is the culture. The problem is the environment around him. And so, if we get rid of poverty, I mentioned that, if we, get, if we make sure that there's education, then uh, we, could, we could reform those people, which is, makes its way into our judicial system, and even more than our judicial system, our penal system. For instance, if everyone is good and they just need to be conditioned, then the last thing you're going to do is kill a murderer and punish them through capital punishment because ultimately it's not their fault, it's the environment's fault. And so if we simply put them into some place and through psychology and behaviorism we can reform them, through reformation we can make them good citizens uh, again. They can become good citizens and contribute to society. Now, has anyone here done any kind of uh, study on recidivism? Is that the recidivism? Recidivism. I think that is. Recidivism of, uh, of all these psychologically, behavioristically uh, manipulated people through our prison system is psychology and behaviorism. Is it reforming them and making them good citizens? Based on statistics. We're not seeing it. As a matter of fact, the only ones who have seen to have any kind of hope of really being changed are those who are born again, truly born again. When they're truly born again, they need a tremendous amount of, of accountability and encouragement after they get out to be able to become productive uh, citizens. And so there is, we don't believe in a reformation of those people. We believe that there must be, they must be born again. And since they need to be born again, then, well, we'll get into that. But definitely... Humanistic psychology creeps its way even into the way that we deal with, with criminals um, in the United States. It just shows how pervasive this the humanism is. You take humanistic psychology and they're going to do all kinds of different things. They will use hypnosis. As long as hypnosis is a way of uh, changing your behavior, as long as it works, well, hypnosis is fine. And you know what happens? Humanism uses hypnosis. Next thing you find, hypnosis training in the churches because churches are thinking, well, if they're getting some results out there, then we'll try it as well. And so you have humanism creeping into churches where there have been churches, even within our, our state, within our city, that have hypnosis uh, therapy training sessions where Christian counselors, they call them, or Christian psychologists or pastors, Christian soul workers, they can come and learn how to use uh, hypnosis effectively to change people's behavior. So that's one thing. Uh, there are other things. They definitely are going to be more drug related because they definitely don't think that uh, there's a soul, there's a personality that needs to be disciplined and cared for and given direction. And so all of someone's behavior problems are going to come more out of chemicals. And so they're going to be very heavy on the side of let's, just, let's treat it with, with chemicals. Uh, and I'm not trying to get into a, a discussion on every single thing that is out there. Uh, for instance, depression would be one of those things. When there is an ongoing persistent depression, the first thing that I would do as a biblical counselor is I'd have them go get a medical checkup. There may be truly something physiologically wrong with a, uh, with a person. For instance, I never even knew this, but earlier this year I uh, found out my thyroid wasn't working. And when they called me up and they said, hey, we're taking this blood test. Uh, are you depressed? I said, well, not any more than usual. Every Monday, but beyond that, it's not too bad. <laughs> they said, uh, are you gaining weight? I said, no, I've been running, so I'm not really gaining weight. Uh, are you tired? Well, no more tired than I have been for the last 15 years. Uh, you know, I, I, 
and he said, well, your thyroid's not working. We need to get you on this medication. If you start taking Synthroid, then that's going to really help. And, and it truly has. I mean, the frame of mind and strength. I think a lot of you who have had thyroid problems start understanding that sometimes the thyroid, there can be a physiological explanation or rationale behind some depression or exhaustion or fatigue or things like that. I am not saying that there are not those cases. First thing I would do in some of those cases is I get someone to a doctor and they can get a they can get a, a checkup and see if there's some physiological explanation for it. However, there's not always a physiological explanation for it, and so sometimes there needs to be a soul solution, a spiritual solution, a biblical solution, which deals with the, the heart or the soul beyond what monism is able to deal with. Are you following me up to this point? They are going to be focused on drugs or on things that will affect the chemistry of the body, whereas not everything has that solution. As a result, sometimes we have a bunch of drugged out zombies walking all over the place because we're just so happy to, to prescribe anything and everything to try, to try to solve all the problems. And all the problems are not physiological. Many of them are soul problems that they're not even coming close to dealing with. Okay. I think that I've explained it with enough, uh, with enough cloudiness that you will come talk to me the rest of the week about those, that issue. All right, so physiology, hypnosis. How about some of the other crazy things they come up with? Uh, how about rebirthing? Have you ever heard of that one? So you get them all cuddled up, put blankets over them. I mean, blankets are safer than doing it in a bathtub because they have done it before in a bathtub where they drown the victim. But cover them up with a blanket. They act like they're in a womb and now you do the rebirthing process. And through that, it's become popular because there have been those who have been, uh, they've been choked. They've been, they've been killed. They, air has been withheld and they've died at doing it. You say, that's ridiculous. Who would, who would give themselves to that? Christians give themselves to it. And so rebirthing finds itself into churches and Christian training or Christian psychology centers, and which tells you that in some cases, because they're so willing to take on all these other far-fetched ideas, it tells you that they are more influenced by secular humanistic psychology of the day than they are by the biblical rationale of the word. And just because they call themselves Christian and just because they call themselves a church doesn't mean that they're holding to a Christian worldview. Are we all together on this? Secular humanism is not just out there with the Pavlovs and the other, you know, Skinners and other radicals. Secular humanism has affected itself to this point where I need to examine everything that I'm thinking and what I'm doing because I have been so influenced by the culture around me that I need to compare what am I thinking and what am I doing and how does that compare to Scripture? That's what David said in, the, in, in Psalm 119. He said, I compare or uh, I thought on my ways or I compared my ways to your paths and I turned my feet to your paths. And that's what Christianity is about. That's why we, have, that's why we spend time in the Word of God. Because that gives us a chance to compare God's thoughts with our thoughts. We reject our thoughts or this humanism-dominated uh, humanism world, and we turn to follow God's ways instead. It's a constant, ongoing process of, of uh, comparing or bringing our thoughts captive to compare them to what the Scriptures say. Uh, monistic self-actualization. Self-actualization becomes the goal. That is their ultimate goal of, uh, for society. They want to self-actualize. Uh, that's part of why there's this huge concert that's trying to alleviate poverty uh, or debt in Africa. 
Because they think if we're going to really deal with the problem, then we just need to, if we alleviate poverty, if we alleviate disease, if we get rid of, uh, you know, some of these things that are hindering people from self-actualizing, then we will all grow up to take the next step of evolution. And they truly believe this. That we've come as far in evolution as nature will take us, and the next step of evolution will be a step that mankind takes himself, that we will bring that evolution. They believe that it's primarily through behaviorism and psychology. Uh, monistic Pavlovian behaviorism, I've already talked to you about. That's why you get into you know shock therapy. and Man, you know, there's really some just dehumanized lack of compassion kind of things that they end up doing in the name of, of uh, psychology. And it was all through, it's been all throughout this century. And the Nazis, a lot of their experimentation had to do with this kind of premise and idea. A lot of what, was, what happened in the former Soviet Union was along these lines. And so you can just go on and on. Collective consciousness is entirely different, although it becomes somewhat the same. Let's see. I told you that pantheism and atheism, I didn't tell you this, someone else did. Pantheism and atheism are really the same thing. Because if everything is God, then there is no God. Okay? So that's why you're going to have, when you start with pantheism, you start with atheism, you're going to have similarities all the way down through. Uh, now, there, non-naturalism says that the material world isn't really what exists. And so when it comes to their psychology, they're going to really not deal with the physical behavior. They're going to really deal with uh, the soul, the mind. They're going to try to do, deal with the spiritual, but just from a different standpoint than a biblical Christian would. And so they're going to use transcendental meditation. They're going to use any kind of mind-altering or mood-altering technique. Uh, they might use music. Um, there's definitely mood-altering music that they will use to help them Meditate and get to a place of peace. They'll use drugs. They'll use crystals. Uh, man, what else do they use? So, is, is someone else here an expert on New Age who can tell me something else? That they, what else do they use? Magnets would be the same kind of thing. Goes along with the lines of crystals. Yes. Okay. So all of that would be, you know, the aura, the aura that's around them, and the biofeedback that comes from that. They're going to use those kind of things to try to deal with the soul issues of a, of a person. But again, it's not going to be balanced because they are ignoring the physiological and actually they're not even coming to the real soul solutions because they believe that instead of God and His Word being the soul solution, what you really need to do is you just need to realize that you are God. And if you realize that you are God, then everything will just be fine and dandy. So you should go out on the beach and just yell that you are God and somehow you'll realize it. I don't know. I, I don't really get the whole thing, but... Let's go back to, to now our last one, and that is um, dualism. And that's where we believe that there is a body as well as a soul, and the scriptures deal with that. They started off, humanists started off with the assumption that man is inherently good. And since they start off with the assumption that man is inherently good, they're going to get to a completely different place than us. You know what? Nancy, um, in my office, I think, is a brown notebook that leather brown notebook if you can find that I think I must have left it it's got some notes that I need alright they start off saying the man is inherently good and and end up becoming 
you know, they dehumanize us. We start off, the Bible starts off telling us that man is not inherently good and that is his sole problem. As a matter of fact, he tells us that our greatest problem is not just our behavior, but our true core problem is our heart. It's our spirit and that's what needs to be dealt with. And so we are spiritual beings. The Bible teaches us that in Genesis 2.7. Uh, God, the Lord God formed man out of the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life and man became a living soul. I mean, there was definitely a difference between man and the rest of the created universe. Man becomes a living soul. He's created in the image of God and being created in the image of God, there is also that spiritual soul side of him. But because sin, thank you, because sin enters in, when sin entered in, man's greatest problem became not his behavior. Man's problem became his very heart and so the true need of man is a heart need and I want to quote a couple of verses and have you help me out with this as well Jeremiah 17 9 can someone quote that the heart is the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked who can know it now, it doesn't seem like that would be a good verse to build someone's self-esteem, but if you start off with a biblical view of man, then you can start dealing with man's real need, and it's true. The heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked, who can know it? Genesis 6.5, someone please look that up, and uh, recognize God's assessment of mankind early in uh, man's history. Very early in history, we hadn't even gone down the road of... Uh, of depraved kind of action and the way we affect each other very far before God looks at man in Genesis 6-5 and makes this analysis of them. Who's got it? Mark, please. When the Lord saw the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intent of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord said, Every imagination of his heart was only evil continually. Well, I, what, else, what, other, what else you add to that? I mean, he's giving us an analysis that is telling us that man has an evil heart and that's what man is doing. And at that point, he says, I'm just going to destroy them and start over again. But as you know, well, anyway, after the flood, God says, okay, well, I'm going I'm to change their heart. That becomes the solution. Jeremiah 13:23. if someone would look that one up, that gives us another idea of man's problem and what really needs to be affected. Uh, Jeremiah 13:23. who's got that? Yeah, go ahead, Mark. Can the Ethiopian change his skin or the leopard his spots? Then you also can do good who are accustomed to doing evil. <laughs> He's saying that it is so much part of your nature that just as you can't color, you change the color of your skin and just as a leopard could not change its spots, I mean, that's what they have been given naturally. He says, those of us cannot do good who are accustomed to doing evil. It is a, it's a problem of our very nature. It's a problem of our heart. And so Romans chapter 3, verse 10, speaks toward that when it says, There is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. It says, They have all turned aside. They have become unprofitable. There is none who does good, no, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness their feet are swift to shed blood destruction and misery are in their ways the way of peace they have not known there is no fear of God before their eyes he starts off by saying man's problem is his character the, the character of man is defiled 
out of that character then comes the communication where what he speaks is bad and then comes the violent behavior and so what he's saying is it's not behavior that's the problem it's not even what he speaks that's the problem it's ultimately man's character it's man's heart that becomes the, the great problem that's what needs to be dealt with Jesus spoke toward this same thing let's turn to Matthew I'd like everyone to turn together please for this in Matthew Uh, Matthew chapter 12 first and then Matthew 15 Matthew 12 33 through 37 either make the tree good and its fruit good or else make the tree bad and its fruit bad for a tree is known by its fruit brood of vipers how can you being evil speak good things for out of the abundance of the heart the mouth speaks a good man out of the good treasure of his heart brings forth good things and an evil man out of the evil treasure brings forth evil things but I say to you that for every idle word men may speak they will give an account in the day of the judgment for by your words you will be justified and by your words you will be condemned in other words what he's saying is the fruit is the behavior of your life and the tree is known by its fruit by the behavior but the real problem or the real reason that it produces that kind of fruit is because of its nature and it says out of the abundance of your heart your mouth speaks so it's not so much just retraining your mouth to speak things that are kind it's not just a matter of re Uh, conditioning your behavior so that you are loving toward others he says you need to deal with your heart because out of your heart your mouth speaks out of your heart everything proceeds as a result he tells us because of that why legalism and why behaviorism why the law is never the solution for man's heart in Matthew Matthew 15 I'm going to start with verse 8. Jesus is confronting legalists of his day. The people who looked at certain law and by looking at the law they say, hey, I'm much better than anyone else. And uh, and so he, he said, these people draw near to me with their mouth and honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. And in vain they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. And then he comes down and he says in verse 11, not what goes into the mouth defiles a man, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a man. In other words, your law is telling you that these guys shouldn't eat. And now you're justifying yourself thinking that you're so much better than so-and-so because you don't eat with unwashed hands like they're eating with unwashed hands. And he says, don't you understand that it's not what goes into your mouth that defiles you? And he goes on and he explains it to them. Um, Verse 17, do you not yet understand that whatever enters the mouth goes into the stomach and then it's eliminated? But those things which proceed out of the mouth come from the heart and they defile a man. For out of the heart proceed evil thoughts, murders, adulteries, fornications, thefts, false witness, blasphemies. These are the things which defile a man. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile a man. The whole point is you cannot justify yourself through your behavior no matter how law-abiding you may be because ultimately the law can only control someone's behavior. And the behavior is not the real problem for man. And so the law, though it is given to control the behavior, the law is also given to show that you are not able to live up to God's righteous standard. It's showing you a need of a Savior. And what you need is not more laws and better behavior conditioning. What you need is you need a change of heart. And that's what a whole new covenant was about. Again, turn to uh, Ezekiel 11, verse 19. And then someone please turn to Ezekiel 36:26, and within this you're going to discover that God has given us the sole solution. The sole solution is that we need a change, a newness of heart, a newness of soul that only God is able to do through salvation. Uh, Ezekiel 11:19. Let me make sure that I have all of the context that I want within that. 
Do verse 20 also. 11 verses 19 and 20. Who's got it? Dave? Crater? Do you have that? No? Ezekiel 11, 19 and 20. If someone else has it, well, great, Bob, please. What a promise that God is giving in that Old Testament. He's saying, I'm not just going to give you the law, which controls behavior and shows you your need, but now I'm going to give a, a, a heart of flesh. I'm going to give the law written on your hearts. I'm going to give the Spirit of God who's indwelling you. I'm going to make you new creatures. That's what salvation is. Salvation isn't just a reform of behavior. Salvation is a newness of heart from the inside out that deals with man's soul issues. And out of that change, then comes the change that is outward as well. And so... Ultimately, for our children or for people that we know around us, we're not so much concerned just about their behavior and trying to reform their behavior so it's not embarrassing to us. We want, to, we want them to have a heart change that is a supernatural thing that God does within their hearts. And that's what we pray desperately for. God, you do what only you can. Ezekiel 36, verses, verse 26 and 27, says the same exact thing that he just read. It's almost a, a virtual quotation, but he's saying the, the same thing. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. Second uh, Corinthians 5.17 Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creature. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. Galatians 2.20 I am crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live. Yet not I, but Christ lives in me. In the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith of the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Jeremiah 31, verses 31 through 34 also talks about the new covenant where God will give us a new heart so that we can be his people. So, first issue is Man, they have the wrong idea about man. They think that man is inherently good. The scripture recognizes that man is inherently evil and he needs salvation. They think that man is good, therefore he doesn't need a savior except for himself. We will, through conditioning behavior, change them. We say that through salvation, God brings about a change. But now that they are a Christian, now that they have a new heart, what is it that allows us to deal with the behavior and the psychology needs of people? By psychology, I'm meaning the soul needs of people. I've heard some people who despise the term Christian psychology. And they say it's because it's like an oxymoron. You can't have Christian and then psychology. Really what it is, is my understanding is, uh, humanistic psychology has stolen the word study of the soul. The only people who can really effectively deal with the soul are coming from a biblical standpoint. So I don't have a, person, a problem necessarily with Christian psychology as long as it's biblical Christian counseling and the, and the, and the advancement of the scriptures solutions for soul problems. But that's not what Christian psychology is representing for the most part today. For the most part... Christian psychology is a name by which humanistic psychology and all of their therapy and all their different ideas come into something with a verse attached to it with a Christian name tacked on. And so what you need to understand is what humanism is presenting and understand that just because it's called Christian doesn't make it doesn't make it biblical. And so I am not denying the term. I'm just telling you that understanding the term properly defined there's a totally different solution between biblical counseling and the biblical solution for the soul and what the humanistic solution for soul issues is. Again, I hope that's not cloudy. It should be clear is, is what I'm talking about, but I'm not going to give specific I'm not going to give specific illustrations because if I do, then you'll miss other things that come. Just think of that as a general idea. Okay, what then becomes the answer to soul problems for a believer? Psalm 1, 1 and 2. 
Someone please look up that. I need someone else to look up and read Psalm 119, verse 50 and 92. Who will get Psalm 119, please? Don Brackett, would you mind? Psalm 119, verse 50 and then 92. Psalm 1, verses 1 and 2. Dale, would you get that and read it, please? Uh, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. Rich Dumay, would you please get that? Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. 2 Peter 1, 3 through 4. Dave. And then also 19 through 20, or no, 20 and 21 of Second Peter. All of these are going to have something in common. We're going to start understanding that God has not only saved us, filled us with His Spirit, but He has given us His Word, and His Word is given to deal with the soul issues. And uh, All right, Psalm 1, 1 and 2. Who's got that, please? Very good. So, instead of being consumed with all the other ideas that are out there, he is one who is delighting in the law of the Lord. And the word of God does bring delight. Psalm 119 talks about the power of the word in someone's soul. Verse 50. Yeah. Wow. My comfort in my affliction is that the word of God is reviving us. Verse 92. If your law has not been my delight, I have cherished Again, affliction are the problems of the soul, and the Word of God is sufficient for dealing with the uh, problems of, of the soul. Uh, Hebrews 4, 12 through 13. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. And it cuts deep into the soul and spirit, just and narrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. Nothing in all creation is hidden from God's sight. Everything is uncovered right here before the eyes of Him. To hold my spirit. Very good. And there again, God has given us His Word to deal with soul issues, to deal with the heart. And it is His Word that is sufficient and able to do that. And finally, Second Peter 1, uh, verses 3 and 4, and then verses 20 and 21. As His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness, through the knowledge of Him who called us by glory and virtue, by which have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these we may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through us. What is the answer? Twenty and twenty-one. Having told us that this is what I'm going to do for you, he tells us wh- how he does it. Knowing this first, no prophecy of scripture is uh, if you can hand it on down there. The prophecy that was taken by the Lord man, the holy men of God spoke of him in the this is a supernatural book. And because it's a supernatural book, that is able to deal with the soul issues of mankind. I gave a very brief synopsis. There's going to be an article here that is good. I'd refer you back to the Understanding the Times book. And there are other things that you can read. But folks, I think what I've given is at least an accurate uh, uh, synopsis of it. I think that that will help you. That you start understanding, oh my goodness. When they start off with atheism, here's how it starts affecting everything about them. In communism, if they start off with atheism, here's how it affects. If they start off with pantheism, here's how it affects everything. And if we start off with the belief that there is a God, and there is the supernatural, and there is the soul, then it should affect everything about it. And we need to be consistent. And if we're starting off here, but we're finding that we're actually over here in, in our applications, then the reality is... Well... The reality is, is even if you don't deny that there is a God, you might be, be a practical atheist because you're really more humanistic in all of your thinking than you are biblical Christian in your thinking. 
And that's why it's good to at least be exposed to this stuff. And, uh, and there's plenty more that you can do from here. Matt, it is so late. We have church coming up. And I'm sorry that it's gotten late. But uh, we'll continue next week. Let's close with prayer. And um, oh, let's see. Mark, would you close us, please? Sure.